Hey there, this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and I'm Mark Scarborough. As you well know, we have slow walked all the way down through the first third or so of Dante's masterwork comedy, that is Inferno. And now to celebrate the completion of our journey, we are simply rereading Inferno straight through as a plot in my English translation. You can find this on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. They go to the same place, but I hope you don't. I hope you just sit back and enjoy the plot. If none of that makes any sense to you, if you're just dropping into this episode to start out Wow, um, there's a lot behind you in this podcast. A lot of stuff about Dante, conversations with Dantistas. It's all lying back behind us. We're going to be at Cantos 24 and 25 of Inferno. One single pouch of the evil pouches of the eighth circle of fraud. A pouch so important it gets its own read through here and got, oh, I don't know, 10,000 episodes of the podcast earlier. We've passed by the hypocrites. We've come on farther down the subsets of fraud in the eighth circle. I should say right before we get started that the last passage had Virgil, what, humiliated by the hypocrites, the two hypocrites who told him that essentially that devils lie as if Virgil somehow forgot that. And indeed, apparently Virgil did. So this passage starts with a reference back to that with Virgil angry, storming off, having been humiliated by two damned hypocrites. In quella parte del Giovanetto anno... Che le sole i creen sotto l'acquario tampra e cie le notti al mezzo di sen vano quando la brine in sulla terra ha sempre l'immagine di sua sorella bianca ma poco dura la sua pena in that part of the year when it's in its youth, so much so that the sun cools his curls in Aquarius and the nights are already about half of the days when Frost copies her image on the earth to look like that of her white sister, although the quill she uses stays sharp only briefly. That's when the villager whose food stocks are running low, gets out of bed, takes a look around, and sees the countryside has all whitened. He smacks his thigh in disgust, goes back into his house, and complains for a bit, like a knave who doesn't know what he should do. Until a short while later, he goes outside again, and hope gets put back in his basket, because he's seen how quickly the world changes its aspect. He takes his crook and drives his little sheep out to find their pastures. Just so, my master made me practically a coward when I saw his forehead so troubled, and just so, the wound got a band-aid really fast, because... At the moment we got up to the ruined bridge, my guide turned back to me with that same sweet look that I first saw at the foot of the mountain. After weighing his choices for a bit and looking those ruins up and down, Virgil opened his arms wide 
and put them tight around me, like someone who estimates every gesture as he labors on and seems as if he assesses every move in advance. He lifted me toward the top of one rock and was already figuring out the next crag to grab, saying, hoist yourself up to that next one, but first test it to make sure it can hold the likes of you. It wasn't a path for those guys in the cloaks down there. For we together, he so light, and I supported from below, had a hard time clambering up from one ledge to the next. And only because on this side of the ditch, the slope wasn't as high as on the other side. Well, I can't say about him, but I would have been beaten. But because the evil pouches all slope downward toward the maw of the pit, each valley is positioned so that one side is higher than the other. Finally, we came to a spot where the last stone lies broken off the ledge above. The air had been so milked from my lungs when I got up there, I couldn't go any farther and sat right down the moment I could. Sheesh! You gotta stop being so lazy, my master said. Settled into downy pillows, nobody gets famous, nor stretched out under a nice coverlet. Without fame, you'll empty out your life and leave no more of a blot on this earth than smoke in the air or foam on the water. So get up. Conquer your breath with the same spirit that conquers all its battles. If it doesn't wave the white flag at its own heavy body, there's a long ladder that you've yet to climb. It's not enough just to get away from those hypocrites. If you get what I'm saying, force yourself to get going. Well, I got up, pretending not to be as out of breath as I was, and I said, Go on. I'm strong and steadfast. So we took the path up the ridge, which was craggy, narrow, altogether poor going, and way more precarious than the previous one. I was talking as I went along so I wouldn't appear to be worn out when a voice came out of the next ditch, seemingly not capable of forming words. I don't know what it said since I'd gotten to the apex of the bridge that crosses over at that spot, but the one who spoke seemed to be on the move. No matter how much I wanted to, my sharp eyes couldn't make out the bottom down there because of the darkness. So I said, Master, when you get to the next embankment, let's descend along the wall. From this point, I hear something, but I can't understand it. I look down, but I can't construe anything. The only reply, he said, that I'd give you is just to make it so. For an honorable request should be met with an action done in silence. We descended the head of the bridge where it joins up with the eighth embankment. Now the pouch was made clear to me. I saw a horrifying pileup of snakes in it and of so many wild types that the memory of it still curdles my blood. Libya, with all its sand, has nothing to brag about, even if it's full up with Caledri, Jaculi, and Ferrae, with Chincras and Amphisbene. It hasn't ever had, nor even with all that's in Ethiopia, and even in the lands out beyond the Red Sea. 
as much pestilence as this, nor as repellent either. In the middle of this cruel and nasty abundance, people were running around naked, crazed with fear, without a crevice to hide in or even a heliotrope. Their hands were lashed behind their backs with snakes who had stuck their heads and tails through their crotches and joined themselves in knots at the front of their stomachs. Lo and behold, right at one of the shades who was near our bank, a serpent shot out toward him and clamped itself onto the spot where the neck and shoulder blades are corded together. Neither an O nor an I was ever written so fast as that soul caught fire, burned up, and was morphed into cinders just as he collapsed into a pile of ashes. But then, as he was lying on the ground all unmade, the dust reassembled itself together, and immediately he came back to how he was. In like manner, the great sages tell us the truth about how the phoenix dies and is born again just as it comes up to its 500th year. It doesn't feed on grasses or grains in its life, but on the tears of incense and on black cardamom, and its final nest shroud is made up of nard and myrrh. Like a guy who falls down without really knowing why, either forced to the ground by a demon's tug or paralyzed in some way that lays the guy out, when he gets back up, he looks around all astonished, completely lost in the middle of the suffocating agony he's endured, just gawking and sighing. Well, so this sinner got back up on his feet. Oh, the sheer power of God. It's so severe that it showers down the copious blows of his vendetta. Then my guide asked the guy who he was, so he came back with this. I rained down from Tuscany a while ago right into this fierce maw. I like to live a bestial life, not a human one, so it was no surprise that I was a mule. I'm Vanifucci the beast, and I denned down in Pistoia. I said to Virgil, my guide, let him not slink away by asking him what sin got him thrown down here, because I know him as a bloodthirsty and cruel guy. When he overheard me, the sinner didn't play around. Instead, he did an about face to confront me head on and got painted with an acrid shame. He said, it causes me more suffering that you have caught me in the misery where you see me now than I ever felt when I was torn out of my former life. I can't even nix a reply to what you ask. I got shoved down here because I swiped the gorgeous pieces from the church. Although others took the blame for the crime, and so that you may not take any joy from seeing me down here, and if you ever get away from this dark spot... Open your ears to what I've got to say and catch this. Pistoia first rids itself of its blacks, then Florence renovates its people and ways. Next, out of the valley of Magra, Mars pulls a lightning bolt out of a bunch of threatening clouds, all with a sudden and bitter tempest, all as they hurry on to war above Campo Piceno. That bolt will tear clear mist and fog so that the whites will feel the hard blows. What's more, I'm just telling you this to make you suffer. At the conclusion of his words, the thief put his hands up with the sign of two figs and hollered out, In your face, God, I aim them at you. From that moment on, 
the snakes became my friends because one wound itself all around his neck as if it wanted to say, I don't want you to speak another word. And another wound itself around his arms to hold him tight, knotting itself so tightly around his front that he couldn't wiggle out. Oh, Pistoia, Pistoia, why don't you legislate your own incineration so that you won't stick around since you go way beyond the corruption of your founders throughout all the dark circles of hell, I didn't see a single spirit so full of pride toward God. Not even that guy who fell off the walls of Thebes. Fuchi fled without uttering another word. That's when I saw a centaur filled with rage run up and shout, Where is he? Where's that acrid soul? I don't believe the swampy Marema has as many serpents as squirmed on this guy's back, from his butt to the spot where our human bits begin. Just above his shoulders, right at the nape of his neck, a dragon was hunched there with its wings spread out and ready to set afire anybody who got close. My master said, That's Caucus, who, under the rocks of Mount Aventine, time and again made a lake of blood. He doesn't go the way of his brothers because of the fraudulent theft he made from the great herd that lived near his domain. Because of that, his double-dealing career was ended under Hercules' club, who gave him a hundred thwacks, although he didn't even feel the tenth one. That centaur galloped by as Virgil was speaking. Then down below us, three spirits came up, whom neither my guide nor I noticed at first until they hollered, Who are you guys? At this, we stopped telling tales and turned our attention to them and them alone. I didn't know who they were, but it came to pass, as it does through sheer coincidence a lot of the time, that one of them mentioned the name of another by saying, where in the world did Chianfa get off to? That's why I, to make my guide Virgil pay attention, set a finger from my chin to my nose. If, reader, you're hesitant to believe what I'm about to say, it's no cause for surprise, because I who saw it can still hardly permit myself to believe it. While I held my eyebrows up to get a good look at them, a serpent with six feet suddenly launched itself onto one of them and hugged him tight. Its middle feet got wrapped around his gut. Its front feet took hold of both his arms. Then it stuck its fangs first into one cheek, then into the other. Its back feet stretched down his thighs. It jammed its tail between them, curving it up along his butt. Ivy never gripped a tree trunk so tightly as this nasty beast put its tendrils all around the guy's body. Then, as if they were made of hot wax, they started to fuse together, mixing their colors until neither seemed what he or it had been at the start. It's the same way that when paper burns, a dark brown color moves in front of the flame, where it's not yet charred black, but... All the white is long since dead. The two spirits were looking on, and each one cried out, Wow, Agnolo, how you morph! See, you're already neither two things nor one. By that point, the two heads had become one, as the two expressions fused into one face until both were lost. Two arms got made out of four limbs. The thighs, along with the calves, the belly, and the chest became body parts that were never before. 
Each former feature was obliterated. This perverse image was now both two things and nothing. Such as it was, it went away with slow steps. Just as a lizard under the heavy lash of the dog star runs from hedge to hedge and glitters like lightning as it crosses the road, just so appeared a flaming little serpent, purple and black like peppercorns. He came right up to the gut of each of the other two, right at that spot where we get our first food. It fixed itself onto one of them. Then it fell off and stretched out in front of him. The bitten one looked at the serpent, but said nothing. Instead, he just stood planted on his feet, yawning as if fatigue or a fever plagued him. He held the serpent's gaze. It held his. Smoke billowed out from both his wound and the serpent's mouth. And then the plumes commingled. Let Lucan shut up up right now, especially where he talks about the misery of Sabalus and Nisidius. Let him wait to hear what my bow lets loose. Let Ovid shut up in those passages about Cadmus and Arethusa. If his poetry morphs one into a snake and the other into a fountain, I'm not jealous of him in the least, because with two natures facing each other, He never transformed things so that their forms quickly swapped places with their materiality. They responded to each other by normative rules. The snake made a fork in its tail, and the wounded guy's feet pulled in together. His calves, then his thighs, stuck together so tight, in fact, that it was impossible to see a crack between them. Meanwhile, the snake's tail took the shape that the other had lost, and its skin got soft while the others got hard. I saw the man's arms shrink up to their pits, and the two feet of the beast, which were short, lengthened in a reverse way to what the other guy lost. Its back feet then twisted together to become the member that men hide, while the one on the miserable soul became two paws. The smoke enclosed both the one and the other, giving off a new color and making hair grow on the parts of one while it sloughed off the parts of the other. One stood up, the other fell down, but neither of them turned their baleful lanterns from each other, even as their muzzles were changing under them. The one who was erect scrunched up his face toward his temples so that the excess material extruded itself into ears out of his smooth, flat cheeks. The excess material that didn't switch around toward the back made the stuff of the nose on his face and thickened his lips as to the one on the ground. His muzzle stretched out and his ears pulled back into his head, about as the horns of a snail retract. His tongue, which had been in one piece and capable of speech, split itself, and the forked tongue of the other fused together. That's when the smoke stopped. The one that had become a wild beast fled hissing down the valley, and the other, who could speak now, spat at that beast. Then he turned his new shoulders toward the third guy and said, My wish is that Buoso has to run, as I have had to, on all fours in this ditch. In this way, 
I saw the seventh loaded shipment mutate and transform. The sheer novelty of it all lets me excuse my quill if it strays a little out of bounds. And although my eyes were confounded and my soul was distraught, these sinners could not slip away quietly enough that I didn't clearly recognize Puccio Shinkato who was the only one of the three companions who remained unchanged after they'd first arrived on the scene. The other was the one whom you, Gavile, still lament. non scorcessi ben puccio sciancato, ed era quel che sol, de tre compagni che venner prima, non era mutato, l'altera quel che Tu, Gavile, piangi. Cantos 24 and 25 of Inferno, they are unbelievably complicated. We spent a long time in the podcast going over these, over the ways that they indeed do take on Lucan and Ovid, and Dante asserts himself as a poet. But it's important to just to step back, as we just did, and just see it as a plot a narrative bit of pyrotechnics, great storytelling that borders on disbelief, in fact, goes way over the edge of disbelief, and yet maintains its tone throughout. See, I had to say a little interpretive blather right there, but I'm not going to say any more, so subscribe to this podcast, rate it. I can't help myself. Come back next time, because we're going to keep on with this reading of Dante. Thank you for the ratings. Really helps in the algorithms and the logistics and all that kind of stuff that is this weird social media and internet world. I will see you back here on Walking with Dante next time for yet more cantos as we descend down the plot of Inferno. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you soon.